0: I'd like to ask you to uh, turn to our text for this morning, uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. We're actually beginning a new sermon series uh, this week. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, some different uh, stories from the gospel of John. Um, As we'll see throughout uh, his gospel, John actually talks of seven signs that Jesus performed. I'll explain this more in a little bit. Uh, John doesn't use the word miracle the way that the other gospel writers does. He uses the word sign, and he records seven of them in his gospel as a way of of sort of signifying to us who Jesus is and, and what we are to believe about him, actually. And so the first one of those is here in John chapter 2, and we'll be looking at uh, this one and then uh, the other six in coming weeks as well. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and this is what the text says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. "'Woman, why do you involve me?' Jesus replied. "'My hour has not yet come.' But his mother said to the servants, "'Do whatever he tells you.' Now nearby there were six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, "'Fill the jars with water.' And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, "'Now draw some out and bring it to the master of the banquet.' They did so." The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said to him, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I don't know if you ever have this, but every once in a while I'll have someone walk up to me who I don't really know um, and start talking to me like we're old friends. That used to happen to me in college. Every once in a while someone I didn't really know would come up and say something like, Hi, Brandon. How are you doing? And as I tried to figure out who they were and who was talking to me, uh, they would just sort of carry on from there as if I had every idea who they were. Now often, uh, what would turn out is that 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 person was a friend of a friend or something like that, right? And what often would happen was eventually that mutual acquaintance would come up and say something like, hey, Brandon, you remember Nicole, right? Or, Brandon, this is Ben. I told him a bit about that time when we did that thing and he wanted to meet you. Well, in the same way, There's actually something similar going on in our text for this morning. You see, at this point in John's Gospel, it's only the second chapter, but we know a little bit about Jesus. We've heard at least a thing or two about him. Um, We haven't had too many interactions with him yet, but we know him at least somewhat. And so we have a vague idea of, of who he is and who John believes he is as well. And yet, we don't really know him well yet. And so what the Apostle John does in this text and and sort of throughout the first half of this gospel is he kind of acts like that mutual friend um, between the two of us. It's almost as if John walks up to us in this passage and says, hey, this is Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. Let me help you get to know him. Let me help you understand who he is. That's more or less what's going on in this text. John tells the story of the wedding at Cana as a way of introducing us to Jesus, helping us get to know him better, and revealing to us who Jesus really is. Now, in order to understand all of that and what it is that John's trying to tell us about Jesus here in this passage, there are a few things that we need to understand about the context and and backdrop of what's going on here. And the first is that first century Jewish weddings were a big deal. Uh, You see, like our weddings today, weddings back then were joyful events. Um, They were worthy of celebration. They often included a party in honor of the newlyweds. And yet, as big a deal as some people make their weddings today, I'm not sure that any of our modern wedding celebrations would be able to hold a candle to the kind of weddings that people had back then. That's because, first of all, there weren't really guest lists for weddings back then. Instead, in that time and culture, if you were having a wedding, a wedding, you pretty much invited everyone, okay? No matter how long it had been since you talked to that aunt, no matter, no matter how many years it had been since you'd seen that friend, no matter, no, no matter how many times removed that cousin was from your family, you had to invite them. In fact, for people uh, in Jesus' day, it wasn't uncommon uh, if you were having a wedding to invite the entire town that you lived in. And you better believe that most, if not all, of those townspeople would show up as well. But that wasn't the only difference between weddings back then and weddings today, because just like there wasn't really a guest list, there also wasn't really a wedding day either. Instead, it would be more accurate to say that there were wedding days, plural. That's because the weddings of Jesus' day often went on for more than one. So here in North America, we're used to weddings taking maybe the better part of a Friday or Saturday evening, maybe an afternoon as well, if it's an especially long ceremony but back then it wasn't uncommon for a wedding celebration to last a couple of days. In fact, sometimes they even went as long as a whole week. And so as you might expect from a week-long affair, first century Jewish weddings were spectacular affairs. Each day there would have been table after table of food. The wine would have been flowing. There would have been live entertainment, dancing and gift giving. Each day the town would wake up, go to the wedding, enjoy themselves and then go home again at night so they could go to bed and wake up and do it all over again the next day. In other words, for people in Jesus' day, weddings were often the highlight of the year. Given their extravagance, abundance, and length, they were the biggest party that a town or village in that time could experience. And so as a result, they were loaded with meaning and significance and joy, more so than just about anything else. In fact, that's actually why a number of the ancient Jewish traditions borrowed the image of a wedding feast as a way of helping people understand what it would be like when the Messiah came. Like a wedding, the prophet said, when the Messiah finally came, his arrival would be accompanied by overwhelming abundance and delight. In fact, the prophet Isaiah describes exactly such a vision in Isaiah 25, verses six through eight. He writes, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his angels' disgrace from all the or his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's this beautiful image of what God will one day do for His people, and Isaiah there is borrowing actually imagery from a wedding feast. Now, because weddings are such a big deal, they also had strict social codes that went along with them. For instance, guests were expected to bring a suitable gift for the couple. Hand-me-downs, a card with a bit of cash, or a gift card wasn't going to cut it. Um, Neither would showing up underdressed, which Jesus makes pretty clear in his parable in Matthew 22. In return, though, the wedding hosts were expected to keep the wine, food, and good times coming. And failure on either part of either the guests or the hosts to to make sure that they lived up to those codes would have resulted in major uproar and a lot of shame for those involved. Uh, In fact, I actually know something of this from first-hand experience. Um, When I was in Israel and Palestine back in 2011, our group was staying at a Palestinian Lutheran guesthouse in Bethlehem. Uh, One of the staff members at the guesthouse happened to have a cousin who was getting married the first Friday that we were there. Uh, Much to our surprise, she told us that her family had heard that we were in town, uh, and so they invited us to come to the reception. As a result, when Friday came, we all put on the best clothes that we had brought with us, uh, found some sort of gift that we thought might be suitable to bring, uh, and got ready to walk over. Just as we were about to leave the guest house, though, the phone rang. It was the cousin who worked there. She was ashamed to admit it, but her family had actually run out of food. And so rather than have us show up and not be able to feed us, they uninvited us. Okay? You see, even today, it is considered better etiquette in the Middle East to uninvite someone from a party rather than have them show up and not be able to provide for them. To have people show up to a wedding and have nothing to give them is, a, is still a very shameful experience for people in Middle Eastern culture, even today. And so with that in mind, I think it's fair to say that the situation John is describing in this text isn't a good one. Okay? In fact, it's actually bordering on social disaster. The fact that this wedding has run out of wine means that it's about to implode. And the hosts, including the bride and groom, are one empty wine glass away from a world of shame. And yet that is exactly why John tells this story. That's exactly what he's trying to highlight for us as his readers here. That's exactly what he wants us to see. He wants us to see the drama the crisis, the potential for disgrace. He wants us to see all of that because that sets the stage for what he wants to tell us about Jesus. This is how he's going to introduce us to Jesus. This is how he's going to show us who he is and why we should care. And so in verse three, just before everything goes wrong with this wedding, Jesus' mom comes up to him and gives him an update. They have no more wine, she says. Jesus responds that it's not his time yet, but Mary persists. She goes to the servants who are standing nearby and says, do whatever he tells you. And they do. After talking with his mother, Jesus tells them to fill a couple of nearby stone jars with water. But these aren't just any old stone jars, okay? Instead, as the text says, they were the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, You see, according to the Jewish religious code, um, there were some pretty strict guidelines that people had to follow in order to maintain good hygiene, and one of them was washing your hands. Put simply, when Jewish religious people gathered together for a meal like they would have at this wedding, it was expected that they would wash their hands before they came to the table. Doing so ensured that they would be clean in the presence of their neighbors as they shared that meal together, but also, and more importantly, pure in the sight of God himself. And that's what these stone jars were for. They were hand washing stations. They were more or less the same thing as a public bathroom sink. They were there to get the dirt and grime off your hands so that you could eat. But you wouldn't, just like with a bathroom sink, you wouldn't actually want to eat or drink anything that came out of them. And yet those are the jars that Jesus uses. He tells the servants, fill them with water, and so they do. And then much to their surprise in verse 8, he tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Like we said, there's already drama here, right? This wedding is teetering on the edge of disaster. It's about to become a wedding planner's worst possible nightmare. There are few things that could go more wrong with a wedding than what's happening here. And yet this is Jesus' solution? Fill a couple of, of hand-washing sinks, ladle some water out of one of them and bring it to the master of the banquet. Just put yourself in the shoes of the servant who has to do that for a second, okay? Imagine drawing some water out of a, out of a sink and carrying it to the person who's in charge of making sure that everything at this wedding goes well and saying to him, uh, there's a guy who's saying that this is going to solve the wine problem, Okay? And yet that's what happens. And even more amazing, it works. Because somewhere down the line, somewhere during that walk between those hand-washing jars and the master of the banquet, the liquid in that ladle isn't just hand-washing water anymore. It's wine. It's good wine too. So much so that in verse 10, he leans over to the groom and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper stuff once the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best until now. And it sounds crazy, right? Changing water into wine, it doesn't make sense. That's not how things work, it's unbelievable. And yet that's what John says happened. And so the crisis is averted, the problem is resolved, the guests stay happy, and none but a few servants are any the wiser. Everything is gonna be fine. The party can continue, and the hosts have dodged a close one. But John can't resist a bit of commentary on all of this. He wants us to understand what he's trying to tell us. He wants to make sure that we get what he's saying about Jesus here. He wants to be sure that that he gets the introduction right. And so in verse 11, he writes, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. It's important to, to know that uh, John doesn't follow the example of the other gospel writers. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when something like this happened, when Jesus did something like this, this they would call it a miracle. Uh, in the Greek, the word for that is dunamis, uh, and it, it literally means deed of power. It's actually where we get the word dynamite from, and that's where the emphasis is in this word. The emphasis in dunamis is on the power. It's an action word. It tells us what someone does. But that's not the word that John uses. Instead, throughout his gospel, John calls this sort of thing a semion, a sign. And a semion, it doesn't emphasize power the way that dunamis does. It's not an action word. It's not about what someone does. Instead, semion is a sign about who someone is. And that's the whole point of this story for John. The whole reason why John tells us about this sign is to start revealing Jesus' identity to us. It's about pointing us, his readers, forward so that we can see who Jesus really is. It's about letting us in on the significance and meaning behind his actions at this wedding. You see, the same way that a road sign doesn't always tell you that you've arrived, but sometimes instead points you ahead, you know, you're driving down the highway and it says Grand Rapids, 58 miles, right? In the same way, John isn't telling us just that this is what Jesus did at this wedding in Cana. Instead, he's trying to point us ahead to everything that's still to come and who Jesus really is. And who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, in verse 11, John tells us that Jesus is someone glorious. He's someone worth believing in. Indeed, part of what John is pointing us to, even here in just the second chapter of his gospel, is that Jesus is, in fact, the very Son of God. He's not simply another guest at the party. Rather, he's God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, God himself come down to restore, redeem, and renew his world. And that, is what we get a glimpse of in this text. We get John, Jesus' friend and disciple, coming up to us and saying, oh, I see that you've met Jesus. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about him. Let me introduce you to him. Let me tell you who he really is. And so he does. He tells us this story he tells us about this sign. He tells us so that we can see what he sees, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, our Lord. And the fact that that's who Jesus is should be clear from what he does at this wedding what he does with this sign. You see, at this wedding, Jesus takes something ordinary, something that that everyone else there would have been familiar with, and he changes everything about it. He makes it something new. No longer are these stone jars simply around so people can wash their hands. Instead, they've become reservoirs for something much better. No longer are they filled simply with hand-washing water. Instead, now they're holding the best wine around. And no longer is this wedding simply a wedding. Instead, it's become a sign. A sign that shows us who Jesus really is. A sign that tells us that he's the savior we've been waiting for. A sign that points us ahead to how he will one day restore, renew, and redeem everything. He's the one who's going to take the things that are ordinary broken and on the brink of disaster and make them new. That is what John wants us to see. Here and that brings us to the gospel this morning you see for too long things have not been the way they're supposed to be for too long this world this creation has been falling apart for too long we have been falling apart it wasn't always this way it's not how god created it it's not how he created us but it's how we've made his world and it's how we've made ourselves because of our sin Because of our sin, this world has become warped, distorted, and like a wedding that has run out of wine, teetering on the brink of disaster. And so have we. And we all know this, right? Either from our own lives or from our observation of others' lives. This world is not how it's supposed to be. And yet that's changing. Because with Christ, the old way of things has ended, and there's something new, something different, something abundant taking its place. John's point in this story is this, Christ has come and so everything has started to change. Suddenly this world is no longer the difficult place that we've come to know. It's, it's no longer simply a place of struggle and pain and unrest. Instead, it's the world that Christ has redeemed. It's where God is doing something new through his son. Suddenly we're no longer the people that we've been, broken, making mistakes and wishing for something more. Instead, we're the children of God, citizens of his kingdom, members of his own family and guests at the banquet of our father. That's what we see in this text, in this story, in this sign. Suddenly everything is different and God is doing something new, filling his creation with the joy and abundance that he meant it to have from the beginning. We see that same process, by the way, when someone makes a piece of art. Uh, artists take uh, one thing and they make something new out of it. At its core, that's what art is. It's it's looking at a lump of clay, a bit of paint, a blank canvas, and imagining something else, something better, something more beautiful in its place. I have a friend uh, who's, a, I think, a pretty good artist. At least I enjoy his work. Uh, he lives near where I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, and so I was home for Christmas a, a few years ago and, and we decided to get breakfast together. And uh, towards the end of breakfast as we were finishing eating uh, he said to me you know Brandon there's, there's something I want to show you uh, so we got in his car together and he took me to Gary Indiana I don't know how much you know about uh, Gary um, it's not far from where I grew up but it's an old industrial city uh, that, that's most its biggest claim to fame as being Michael Jackson's hometown and yet Gary has fallen on hard times. In fact, for a while, uh, it was actually considered uh, the murder capital of our country. Um, and driving through it with my friend after breakfast that morning, I remember that it looked more like a war zone than a, than a North American city. Um, buildings were boarded up and crumbling on every side, and we visited an old church that seemed especially desolate. In its prime, this church probably would have resembled one of the great cathedrals of Europe, but it clearly had been years since the roof had fallen in, and instead it had become a a homeless hotel for all the stray dogs around Gary. My friend didn't see a run-down town. He didn't see derelict buildings and hopelessness. He didn't see a church building in need of demolition. Instead, what he saw was a canvas. Because one of the kinds of art that my friend does is actually street art. So driving around Gary, he saw a canvas, a place for him to make beautiful with his murals. He saw something worthy of restoration and renewal. And that's what we see in this text, too. That's the kind of creativity our God has, and then some. That's how he looks at this world. When he looks at this world, he doesn't see a place pockmarked with pain and struggle. He doesn't see people who have rejected him. He doesn't see a hopeless creation lost to sin. Instead, he sees something beautiful. He sees a creation ripe for something new, something glorious, something wonderful. And he sees all of that because of his son. And that's what John is trying to get at with his stories about weddings and his talk about signs. That's what all of this points to. That's what his introduction to Jesus is meant to help us see. That's what he wants to reveal to us about who Jesus is. This Jesus isn't simply up to party tricks at weddings. He's not just another guest at the celebration. He's not even just the savior of the day who keeps the party going. Instead, he's the savior of the entire world. He's the son of God. And he's creative enough to take our scarcity and shame and turn it into a celebration of abundance and joy. Abundance that can reimagine a rundown city and make it beautiful. Joy that doesn't have to uninvite the guests because there's not enough for them. A new creation that puts right this upside down world. My friends, that is the gospel good news that John is pointing us to in this text. That's what he's trying to reveal to us about Jesus Christ. And you want to know the best part? We get to participate in that Because of Jesus and what he's done for us, because of his sacrifice, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we get the invite to be part of everything that God is doing through his son. That's what we're going to celebrate in just a little bit when we come to this table here, to this banquet to this abundance of food and wine and joy offered to us in the body and blood of our Lord. Like Jesus' sign at the wedding in Cana, what this meal really is, is a sign for us of what God has done for us through his sacrifice for us and also everything that he's still going to do through Christ. Remember that each time we share this meal. Remember that because of Jesus, we are one step closer to the celebration one step closer to God's new creation and one step closer to his glorious banquet feast. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that though, because of our sin, this world has become one of scarcity, you are still a God of abundance. Though we have become sinful people, you are still a God of grace. And though sometimes we can't see a way forward, you have given us signs that point us to everything that you're going to do. The restoration and redemption that you have already made possible in Christ and that you will one day complete when he comes back again. Thank you for making him our savior, for giving us your grace, and for restoring us as your people.